Welcome to Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar. I'm Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. And we're here today with Michael Grudberg. He's a partner at Tartar, Krinsky, and Drogan. He specializes in criminal defense, white-collar criminal defense, and complex civil litigation. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me, fellas. And today we are, since Michael does a lot of criminal defense, today we're having Brooklyn Defender IPA. That's what we're drinking in the studio today. I've had, I've had two sips and do not like it. Let's get let's go around the table, Michael. What do you think of the IPA? White collar IPA not being yet available, and shout out to all my friends at the Brooklyn Defender's Office. Great stuff. <laughs> I don't know why I got an IPA that's not good for my stomach at all. It's a seasonal offering. Oh, it's got a Comic Con tie in or labeling do you actually, on the. Do you actually bo- do both? Of you guys actually like it? I do not like it. <laughs> I don't like it either. <laughs> I think it's pretty terrible. I'm going to drink I'm also, it. I also don't I, really like any IPAs. You don't like alcohol, which is weird that we that we have a podcast called Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar. I like alcohol. And you, de- just, and you detest alcohol. As long as it's white wine. And You guys are <laughs> self-funding here and not angling for advertisers. So. <laughs> Brooklyn Brewery, be Brooklyn, darned. Brooklyn Defender is probably not going to sponsor the next episode. And I live around the corner from Brooklyn Brewery, so it would be like the perfect sponsor for us. But, I mean, it's, it's it a little a, on the soapy side, but I don't mean that in a bad way. So, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and kind of the pre-college life? I'm Michael Grudberg of the New Haven Grudbergs, one of five kids born between 1960 and 1966. Dad was a lawyer, Yale-educated lawyer who, you know, grew up in Connecticut, born in the Bronx, Yankee fan, moved to Bridgeport, as he likes to call it, when uh, when he was in grade school, though Bridgeport was really Stratford, but Bridgeport sounded better. Uh Went to public school there, uh, straight through um, regional high school, Amity, and ended up going to college at Colgate in the frozen north after taking a gap year before it was cool to take a gap year. Um, You made it cool to take a gap year. It didn't feel cool at the time, but it really was one of the best things that ever happened to me. You know, I just, my junior and senior year in high school, for reasons we won't get into on the podcast, you know, a a couple of three A's on the report card and then something somewhat south of there. So I was not presenting to admission staff as somebody who was ready to roll, and I really shouldn't have been presenting to myself that way. So I went and got a couple of jobs or, you know, jobs that I was doing simultaneously, uh, lived at home, and I just hit college, uh, hit the ground running. And, and so, you know, I know kids nowadays are sailing in the Mediterranean or, you know, taking an Elon Musk trip to Mars for their gap years. And it's really vacation before school. But for me, it was a great chance to get my head on straight and really, you know, figure out why I wanted to be in college. To Man, I, I want a gap year. Were you, a gap year. were you into Colgate when you took the gap year? Or did you apply to Colgate or apply to schools during that gap year? I hadn't applied to Colgate on the first go-around. Okay. They came to Yale Bowl back when people actually used to attend football games at Yale Bowl. So the school was on my radar. But really, this was before the Internet. So if you wanted to figure out what schools were good for you and you wanted to see a picture of it, you'd have to put a stamp on an envelope and send away for their brochure. So, you know, as I expanded my search the second time around, it was one of the early ones that I looked at. And frankly, when I took a trip up there, you know, I, I waited to see how the how the acceptances came in. Second go around, took a trip up and back, which is a nine-hour proposition in one day, uh, but enough time there to fall in love with the campus and fall in love with the place and uh, have never regretted it. What is- is that why you made the decision? Was it 
kind of falling in love with the campus and you said, I, I, I want to be here. I could picture myself here. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a, I had a good feel and I'm, I'm working here on pretty cobwebby recollections in terms of what my actual decision structure was, but I knew academically in terms of the kind of liberal arts assortment they were offering, the size of the student body, you know, the geographical composition of where people were coming from, all of that, which I'm sort of pretending to remember now. <laughs> uh, but I, I, it was it was one of my uh, higher candidates before I got there. But it's just a, a lovely, lovely place to hang around. And as soon as I rolled on campus, it went to number one and stayed there. What did you study when you were there? History. Did you do that with any intention of, I know you said your dad was a lawyer. Did you think history major is a good major if I want to ultimately go to law school? Yeah, yeah I, I chose history really just because of a love for it. And, and uh, you know, I guess you could say that it, it it's a major that kind of leaves you with options to go in a lot of different directions. It's training in primary research. It's good writing training uh, uh, with exposure to good writers on the faculty side. Uh, but in terms of the dad effect, um, it, my, my father was somebody who, back in the day when we were in grade school and high school, he, his line was, oh, I wouldn't want to work with my kids and they'll do whatever they do. And I didn't feel, I felt neither coaxed nor discouraged to enter legal practice and, you know, just to, to roll into one of the things that I talked with you guys about before, my, my decision to go to law school was really a mid-college decision for me. Um, candidly, as I've said ever since, I decided to go to law school because it seemed the closest thing to another three years of college, and college was a pretty good life. But more seriously than that, um, I knew that that law practice, and I think even as early as college, I felt like litigation would be the kind of practice that I'd be interested in. Um, I felt like that would be at least consistent with my skills and uh, and was appealing to me uh, as something to do. Uh, there was no sort of aha moment where I kind of sat down and banged the desk and said, okay, we're off. What skills were those when you when you say, you know, you thought law school would be consistent with your skill set? What, what were your strengths at that time and what were you sort of trying to, to play into? What I consider the relevant strengths, I think, were uh, expository writing um, and – this this podcast notwithstanding, uh, comfort with oral expression. And, and the, the thing that I, I guess I would score it more an interest than a skill, um, and I, I guess I was more guessing at the time than, than, than uh, anything based on having done it, but the, the notion of a debrief or, or doing a kind of an, an oral interview, uh, whether from the client or a witness or anybody else, um, I... You know, this is just popping into my head now, but I had I had read a number of Studs Terkel books and seen him on television, and you know, I, I guess no, do you know who that is, Lee? I, I'm going to pretend that I know who that <laughs> he is. is. He, he's well, this is sort of my '70s era um, uh, cultural grounding, which will surface not for the last time today. But uh, <laughs> he, he was a Chicago-based sort of gravelly-voiced oral historian and journalist. Um, you guys should look up a book called Working. It's now 40 years old. I've heard of that but, book. But it's vignettes, you know, from 8 to 15 pages of just interviews that he did. And I think he mostly worked with a reel-to-reel recorder, but just sat down with people, had them tell their stories, and then kind of Jimmy Bruslin did it into a, a more of a polished presentation, heavy on the quotes, 
but re- really I, I, the essence of it was to draw people out by just basically sitting there and, and looking at them like you guys are looking at me. It's kind of, yeah. Don't it's say anything and they'll the just idea, keep on talking. Isn't that what I lawyers lo- do? I love a good gravelly voice. <laughs> I love Batman. I'm telling you. Well, now we have the internet machine, so you guys can go home and watch some Studs Terkel interviews tonight. But um, it, it, that – to have a professional life but to have that be an aspect of it – and to have a kind of rotating cast of characters by way of clients. And, and you know, not to leave my dad's practice out of it altogether, uh, both while I was in law school because his practice was right there. Well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but even as a kid, we'd gone down to watch the trials, and it, it was interesting in and of itself. But it was a, you know, you, you had the, and you don't see this as much anymore, um, but a, a couple of kind of, gravelly voiced and dusty characters just sort of courtroom watchers guys in the back with the with a racing form and nothing else to do who would go and see what was going on by way of trials and it was sort of fascinating to talk to them to sit with them and just see what was going on so, so when you thought of litigator when you were younger and then in college were you thinking courtroom attorney because that's not necessarily what a litigator is right yeah i don't think i knew what a litigator was until i went to law school i you know to me and again, I was a little more sophisticated than thinking every lawyer was Perry Mason, but I, I never really scrolled environmental lawyer or, or, or M&A or anything like that. Obviously, as I went into law school and became a summer associate and I became more sophisticated about these things, the, the world of other kinds of lawyering opened up to me. But yeah, uh, uh, courtroom lawyering, uh, advocating for individuals, that sort of thing is, is what I had in mind. I mean, both as a kid when I thought about it and, and as I got closer to it when it came decision time in college. So where did you go to law school? And, and tell us a little bit about the process of um, applying to law school and taking the LSAT. And Yeah, I, I did not, I did not um, take a, a LSAT prep course but, but did decide uh, probably junior year that, that having thought about it and, and – Again, as I said, moving into it not by default in a negative way but but not having found anything that was really pushing against law school uh, as an alternative, uh, I decided, you know, and again, still for all practical purposes, pre-internet, so comparing notes, getting a book out of somebody's library and sort of scrolling what what might have been a, a list of competitive schools, ended up applying to maybe – 10 or 12, 12 sounds high, probably about about an even 10. Um, uh, you know, sat for the LSAT, got the score. Um, I had done well academically just in terms of GPA and all of that good stuff, uh, and that was the strength in my application. Not that not that my LSAT scores were were anything cringeworthy, but, but you know, I, I, I think that uh, as a candidate I presented uh, most strongly uh, based on the grades. Were they all East Coast schools? Is that where you were looking? Uh, I'm trying to think now. Certainly almost all, if not all. And I'm old enough now not to remember the complete list. You know, I want to say UCLA is somehow looming in my head, but I, I may be completely making that up. But, UCLA is still uh, looming in my head because I'm, uh-huh. I'm still on the wait list for UCLA Law School, <laughs> I think. Wait, where did you end up? I don't know. I ended up at Yale. At Yale, okay. And, and uh, you know... Uh, was quite lucky to do it. Um, showed up there. Uh, it's funny just to to complete the transition. When I got the good news, uh, second semester, I guess it was early second semester, senior year, uh, 
Um, I, I thought about deferring because, yeah, like anywhere else, throwing you one and maybe two years if you wanted it, uh, deferral for the asking. And I thought about going to teach in a prep school and, you know, uh, uh, making some uh, Himalayan trek or something like that. And I just, a- after four years and, and after um, just the effort, the, I guess I'd call it the, the psychic effort of gearing up for the applications and waiting it all through, at the end of the day, I decided just to to go straight in. So, do you do you regret that decision at all? Do you ever think now that you wish you had taken a year? You know, I I don't regret its effects. I do sometimes wistfully think about the lost opportunity because you know um, youth is wasted on the young and unavailable to the old. And I guess I can do elder hostel or <laughs> something when I finally reach my dotage. But you, you never have as much flexibility uh, once you start clocking in uh, as you did back when you were in your mid-20s. So I think of some of the things that, that I was thinking about at the time and and know that they would have been fun, but I don't think they, that they would have changed my vector in any significant way. It's just more like doofus. Why didn't you do that when you had right. the chance? Was there any anxiety about going to a school like Yale? Obviously, there's a certain connotation with, with Yale, and you weren't coming from an Ivy League school. So was there a sense of, was there worry about fitting in? Was, was that going through your head at all? Yeah. I think that, that, um, it, look, it's at least a question. And I, I would say, you know, you never have the scanner for anybody else's brain, but there's always a little bit of the look to your left, look to your right factor. And I think a lot of the people who end up in the Yales and the Harvards do it in part because they're always wondering <laughs> whether they're really a fraud. So, um, the, the day I walked in there, uh, our, our dean then was Guido Calabresi, who's still active senior judge uh, on the Second Circuit and, and a relatively legendary character in the life of the law school. Uh, he was a gangbusters dean. He was a, a charming fellow, a, an amazing fundraiser. And, and also, you know, though it was – uh, in, in fair measure, BS like like anybody else who succeeds in a role like that. He was very good at putting first-year students at their ease and inviting them and really sort of daring them to just enjoy the place. He had this canned speech that I probably gave every year he was a dean and, and maybe before that, but he would tell people, you're off the treadmill. There are other schools where you look to your left and you look to your right. You've arrived here for a reason, so relax and enjoy the school for what it is. And, you know, corny as it was, I think that that it was a, a right way to start the first week of law school. The other thing they do there, and even in second and third year, they don't really get close to anything you could call grading, at least not in my year. It was pass-fail, honors, and no predictive value whatsoever. Some some professors would be reserving their honors in an oaken chest to give it to the great <laughs> one if he or she ever arrived. And some people would think they'd be hurting your feelings if they didn't give you honors. And as much as em- employers would try to unpack that to figure out who was the head of the class and who wasn't, I think it really was close to impossible. Obviously, when it came to clerkships, there were professors who were feeders and blessers of particular candidates. But you didn't really have to worry I mean, there are ways, I suppose, that you could work your way out of school, like the fictional guy from <laughs> Mystic Pizza who managed to flunk out of Yale Law School, but there weren't a lot of people managing it when I was there. First semester had no grades whatsoever. It may have been first year altogether, but certainly the first semester, it was just 
uh, attending satisfactorily. Has that has that changed slightly at Yale? There's is there a little more like now? Is there a little more? You know, is the grading a little? I, I know they still don't do formal grades, but there's is there some kind of I shouldn't confess the ignorance that I'm about to confess because I'm an active fundraiser for them to this day. <laughs> uh, but I, 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 if know. it's changed, uh-huh. um, look, the world's gotten more cutthroat, hardcore, right. and uh, in general. But uh, if they've moved closer to a real grading system, yeah. I haven't heard about it. It's, I, know, I know Harvard still has pass/fail only. Uh-huh. I don't know about Yale. They managed to be hardcore though <laughs> throughout. Yeah. So when you were in law school, did you start? Um, did your did you start thinking about what you wanted to do after law school, and, and did you have any sense of what your career path would look like? Yeah, as I look back on it, I think I think to some extent I let it happen to me. I, I decided pretty early on that I did want to clerk. Uh, I just think it was it again. It's an opportunity that that. It, Though the world has changed and people people follow up with it now, after a couple of years in practice, that was less the done thing then. So was so, it was it? Did you really want to clerk because you thought that that would be an interesting thing to do? Or I know I have a lot of friends who have clerked just because they think it's another you know notch on the belt. It's just a credential. Yeah, I, I think more because it was. I, I thought it was an interesting thing to do. It was. I, I think, and I didn't. I, I could only guess about it at the time, but I, I thought it was uh, an a valuable year's experience and perspective going into practice. I think, you know, we all made jokes at Yale that that w- whenever we would learn the nuts and bolts of legal practice, it wasn't in the three years that we were there. wasn't really looking to a clerkship for that, though I think people I, – I clerked in an appellate court, so it, it – it, it wouldn't be accurate to say that there was no substantive – legal gloss that came with that. But I think people who clerk in trial courts just pick up much more of the day-to-day um, know-how. Uh, and again, there's no substitute for, for learning it as you do it in, in real practice. But I, I think that, that trial court clerkships are, are valuable in different ways for all that. You have a more active doc- docket. Uh, you see lawyers on their feet and on the phone m- much more than you do uh, in an appellate setting when you're coming down for a sitting in a, in a, a formal church-like one at that, maybe once every six weeks. Um, but I, I just, I, I wanted to do it because it was, it was an opportunity. And I didn't, look, and it's obviously a credential. Sure. Uh, if you can get it and, and credentials uh, matter and they're always worth acquiring and, you know, they don't leave the resume. Um, but I, I think that one of the real values of uh, uh, an internship, whether it's a digital clerkship or an externship in a, in a prosecutor's office, whatever else, it just gives you an insight into how the system works. So it's not so much a, a, a Rube Goldberg how-to of what you put in the first paragraph and, and who you call when, when so-and-so arises. You just get, I think, an institutional feel for who does what in an organization, what the done thing might be in approaching a court or a clerk or whatever else. And uh, so I, I think it's very valuable to give yourself sort of a grounding in, in what goes on in the world. And, you know, uh, I, mine was a, a, a very happy and friendly environment. The judge was a terrific guy to work for. 
uh, and the chambers was a happy place. Obviously, results vary uh, <laughs> when it comes to those sorts of things. But By the way, what judge did you clerk for? Judge Winter on the Second Circuit. Okay. And while you were there, when did you begin to start thinking about your next move? Was it right away? Did you wait a little That's while? Funny. If if you would ask him and if you could roll back the tape of him cheerfully berating me. Because um, <laughs> uh, it was a happy place. So it, the berating it was, was cheerful. It was too happy a place, and I think he figured that out. He basically took me by the lapels and shook me and said, or I got a job. <laughs> so I I rode through the clerkship and I told him and 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 this is the way it worked out. I I, I completed the clerkship, did my bar review course, and then and then yeah, can you say pissed on your broadcast? I pissed my money away as slowly as I could and decided where I was going to go. I think even coming out of the clerkship, I, I was thinking of New York, um, and. You know, I didn't know that I wanted to be in New York forever. Uh, in fact, I wasn't at all sure of that. I think when I finally moved to town, I said, I'll give it two years and see how I survive. This was this was back before, whether you give Rudy credit or whoever, Bill Bratton. Uh, quality of life was fine, but it wasn't the wonderland it became in the 90s and 2000s. And, and I was pretty much of a country, a suburban mouse who became a country mouse for four years at Colgate. And, um, I, I didn't have any fear of life in the city, but just at kind of a spinal level, it was big and loud and, and kind of an adjustment in the first couple of months I was down here. So I was not wedded to the idea of being here forever, but I was focused mostly on New York, a little bit on Washington, but I had pretty much decided uh, in the course of law school that I wanted to do a combination of civil and criminal work. And that, at least back in the day, um, was much more suggestive of a white-collar boutique than it is now. Now, it, I, I mean, I mark the Enron moment as the one of the markers of the explosion of white-collar departments in big firm litigation groups. Um, they, it, I wouldn't say they didn't exist then, but they were much, much... Rarer as a proposition, and I, I, I found myself attracted to small anyway. So I don't think I would have been tempted to to go the big route. Even was if it had been was there any when you were applying, coming from Yale and coming from uh, you know having this Second Circuit clerkship? Was there any sort of? I, I imagine there's some competitive nature um, that kicks in when you're when you're going through the job application process. I know certainly for me when I was doing the OCI on campus interview process, there's very much like you know that guy got a jo- got a job offer at SCAD and he got an offer at Davis Polk like I, I and I'm smarter than them and there's sort of that competitive nature kicking in. Right. Did you feel that in any way that like you wanted to go to the best firm or, or this name firm just because you felt like you, you know, you had all these yeah. credentials and you deserve to go to the best? That's a good question. I, I did not find myself drawn to a brand name. Mm-hmm. I sort of didn't have the insecurity that I needed Cravath in my wallet. I'm just picking, picking on Cravath. There are other <laughs> Cravaths out there for those purposes. But I did want, I didn't want to go sort of push McGeggy on the map uh, through my own independent strivings, I wanted to go someplace where at least people who knew the industry would say, "Oh, wow, that's a great place, and that's a great shop, and you'll learn a lot from so and so." So I, I did refine my search to uh, a, a couple of white collar shops. Uh, uh, got my offers, flipped my coin. 
I mean, I shouldn't joke about it, but it was a very hard decision because both of them scored very high on the factors that became important to me. And, you know, b- both the prestige factor that you asked about, you know, I want even if seven-eighths of my law school classmates had never heard of this little place that did only white-collar or white-collar and commercial litigation mm-hmm. with 12 lawyers or 20 lawyers, as the case may be, I wanted it to look good if they were to look it up or if they asked their judge about it or blah, blah, blah. But but the other thing that I wanted, I think partly because I thought it was the right way to learn and partly because it was the most comfortable way to roll into legal practice and frankly the most repellent thing to me about big firm, again, look to your left and look to your right, associate life. I wanted a place where I knew I'd have to work hard but it would be a relatively sleeves-rolled-up environment where I could approach anybody in the shop about what I was working on or a case of theirs that I wasn't necessarily working on. And I hate the expression collegial. I think it's meaningless. But if it means anything, it means what I was looking for. And that was a um, a I won't call it a scholarly environment, but a, a professional environment rather than a business environment and a place where, you know, obviously personalities are always going to be there and and you, you can't blanch that out of the people that you work with. But no politics, no bureaucracy, no tripping over expectations and just going in and working on the cases and shooting the you-know-what as the day goes along. Before you got there, could you tell, like when you went in for the interview, was it you know, very apparent that this was a place uh, that you would feel comfortable, that everyone was, you know, did you know in the interview process that this, uh, did it immediately become apparent or, or sort of only once you got yeah. there, did you uh, You know, uh, it, it, for, for both of my finalists, I did have a good sense. You never know. And you know, the old jokes about picking law firms, you always interview with angels only to find them demons <laughs> who are chasing you down the hallway with pitchforks within 48 <laughs> hours of your arrival. And, and again, you never know about that. Right. Um, but you get a sense, I think it, it's sort of like a critical mass. I mean, I ended up with a small shop uh, called Stillman and Friedman. It was then Stillman and Friedman and Shaw. We lost to Shaw. We added a Sheckman, but we were always Stillman and Friedman through the 25 years that I was there. I rode them from 12 lawyers when I walked in the door up to about 20, and we bounced back and forth depending on who was going in the U.S. attorney's office or moving out of town or whatever. And and um, uh, they were a finalist, so was Morvilla with Bramowitz, which was a little bigger. But both felt very much the same to me. And when I talk about a critical mass, in both shops, I met at Stillman, it was small enough that I met everybody, both associates and partners. Morvilla was close to it. And, you know, I, I kind of felt like in a big firm, you can always hide the ogres. And again, even if in a world where people can passably pretend to be angels for 45 minutes, uh, if you have too many ogres, an ogre will out. And it just, it, both of them gave me the feeling that people were there, you know, uh, without being corny about it. Uh, they were craftsmen, they were storytellers, they were members of of what was a brotherhood and becoming a sisterhood of people who, you know, to be in criminal practice, even in white-collar criminal practice, is to get your ass kicked most of the time. And there's a humility in that and I think a humanity in that 
that really comes across when you sit down with people who have done it and done it for a long time. Do you think if you were going through the process today that you would have made the same decision, just sort of seeing how the legal practice has, you know, changed throughout the course of your career? I've had I've had big law attorneys tell me, um, you know, I never would have gone, you know, I never would have wanted to be a big law associate nowadays and just sort of looking at how the practice has changed. Do you think Mm -hmm. your decision-making process would be the same today as opposed to when you made it? Yeah, I think it would. I think it would. And though the coin flip would, would remain as close as it was then, probably would have flipped it the same. Just something about Stillman felt more like home to me. Though, you know, uh, friends at Morvilla who I've uh, seen and, and worked with, I mean, I've got, a, I've got an active case with them right now. Um, but I think that, that my view of legal practice um, it certainly hasn't changed in a material respect since, wow, 1991 uh, when the, Gulf, the first Gulf War was raging and, and I was trying to make up my mind. Um, I mean, I guess the one thing I would say is that that if I had my first five or – well, maybe not five, but the uh, first 10 years of practice to do over again, um, as I sit here, an, an aged man who's you know becoming a, a marketer for the first time after 25 years, the great thing about my firm was that as a young lawyer – look, the, I mean they did the right thing. Uh, for for young lawyers, including associates, when they brought in business, and and I had some opportunities to do that over the years, and you know I got my percentage, and that was fine, and it was not something that uh, uh, some other people were getting, so I was appreciative of it. But I, the blessing and the curse of life at the firm from the '90s and into 2000s is that you know, some years were better than other years, but. Um, we didn't really have to market. Some of my colleagues were more active than others and, you know, rubber chicken dinners and hitting the golf course and socializing, but never in an organized way. I mean, the, we had the good fortune and, you know, Charlie Stillman founded the firm in the late 70s and was really one of the creators, uh, one of the trailblazers of the white collar bar as such. And, you know, both because of his skills as a lawyer and as a closer, and I don't don't mean that in in a pejorative way. I mean in a competitive field, there's something for putting somebody in trouble and that person's family at ease that you're going to get them through this moment, and that's I think something you either born with or 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 you you learn only with experience. But whatever the combination of factors were, we really didn't have to chase business. Um, again, part of it was that a lot of the firms who are now Hawking white-collar services themselves really weren't doing criminal as such. So a lot of our fellow lawyers were referral sources. But whatever it was, you know, it, it, I, I was able to be content to come in, work hard on interesting cases and make a decent living and, you know, grew into partnership that way. And I can't say that I never thought, wow, I really need to originate more business myself. But – um, there was certainly no institutional pressure to do that, no you know, sort of career coaching like you have now. Um, so I, look, I, I don't know that, that uh, there were no podcasts to create in, mm-hmm. in 1996, um, but I relatively late in my career have gotten into 
uh, uh, bar association committee involvement, uh, trade organizations, and just you know getting out there for the rubber drinks, or excuse me, rubber chicken and, and drink circuit. Um, <laughs> I, I those sorts of things were compulsory because we punched above our weight as a firm and the in the charity luncheon field, and somebody had to sit at the tables, but I was seldom doing it on my own account. How so, long did it take you to make partner? Uh, I started in 91, made partner in 99. Can you give some insight into that process, maybe some tips to young lawyers who are just starting out at either small or medium-sized or big firms for what they should think about doing early on? I think what I would say is always be a volunteer. Um, and I, again, another expression I hate is comfort zone. Um, so I'll, I'll say it more starkly than that. Do what you're afraid to do. Um, just because you've never done that kind of case before, that's not a reason not to do it. That's a reason to do it. Um, you, your colleague, your the partner on the case probably hasn't done it before either, but you work it through together and, and there's an excitement to that that gives you a chance to sort of step out to bring value and insight to the firm to do something new. And I, I think that along the way, again, you know, I was a, a 26-year-old kid. I, no, older than that. I guess I was 28 the day I, uh, I walked in after my gap year, after doing my clerkship. I had really taken a couple of years off there. Um, but I, I think that in in terms of a world in which, unlike big firms, where I think even when you're talking about the world in the 90s, there was a much more organized feedback structure. And I think that in the devil's bargain that those places uh, were and are, people are, are working ridiculous hours with a view at least to having the possibility of a, uh, of a reward at the end of the day. So though we were reviewed on an annual basis, it was – and that was generally a happy experience for me, um, both when I received it as an associate and when I got organized such as I did to deliver it as a partner. It was a little more catch-as-catch-can and probably under-organized for what it was. Uh, but, you know, in, in, in terms of, of what I look back on, and see as the hallmarks to sort of showing your stuff and earning partnership. I think it's just sort of stepping up and doing something and doing something enthusiastically that you didn't think you wanted to do and nobody else seems to want to do. How long did it take you to become partner at your firmly? Uh, immediately. <laughs> there you go. It was very easy. That's the trick. For all you young lawyers out there, if you want to make partner at your firm, leave the firm. And start your own firm. It's very easy to make partner that way. But you got to drink Brooklyn Defender for a few years <laughs> before you really get around. <laughs> what do you, is there anything in particular that you would, looking back, sort of attribute your success to? Do you think it's the fact that you can outwork people? Do you think it's your writing ability? Is it your, what in particular stands out to you? Um, I think it's a combination of hard work and not being a jerk. Um, this is an adversarial business. Um, you can't be in it too long without running into jerks on the other side. 
Some of them do it strategically. Some of them do it or some of them fell into this business because it's an opportunity to be a jerk every day. But um, and 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 Lee, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this from both sides, having, you know, worked both on the government side. And oh, I thought and now, you were saying that I'm a jerk on both sides because you'd be absolutely right. <laughs> I was going right. to get there, but now I'm going to pivot. Um, there's. You, you have to realize early on in white-collar practice or any kind of criminal practice, I think, you, you have to be both vigorous in fighting for your client but at the same time recognize how powerless you are uh, in the grand scheme of things or how relatively powerless you are. And I, I think that it brings home to you the need to be – I won't call it an accommodator or a compromiser like Henry Clay, but I'll call it a diplomat. I don't think you're serving your client if you're rattling your saber all the time, even if on some of the TV shows they do it that way. So you're always going to run into a client who who demands that you show him or her how tough you are and you know that you're a bulldog and all of that stuff, and there's a time for that. And But I think what you really need to show a client is that you are devoted and committed uh, to the long road if they want to go the long road and indefatigable but not, you know, not a, a ninja for the sake of being a ninja because it doesn't fool anybody and it doesn't really do the client any good. Are there any we, – we ask this uh, to most of our guests. Mm-hmm. Are there any books – What do they say? <laughs> Are there any books or movies that had a large impact on your life or your career that you would recommend to a law student or someone early on in their career? I had a sense you were going to ask me about that. Um, (laughs) Look, let me talk about movies first. I think the best – I can't think of a lawyer movie that really had a direct inspirational impact on me before I decided to become a lawyer. Uh Um, and I can't remember when when To Kill a Mockingbird first got on my radar. I probably I know I read it in high school. I don't think I don't think they rolled the eight millimeter uh, <laughs> in class, though that was a great time killer when I was in junior high. Read Pride and Prejudice <laughs> and then watch it four classes in a row. Um, <laughs> but I, I, look, I find that inspiring as a citizen, as a human being, and it obviously focuses around a legal theme and a, and a climactic legal scene. Um, but uh, to me, the best lawyer movies are, lo- are movies that aren't about lawyers at all or unwind in settings where lawyers or a lawyerly environment is so needed, but things go south because they're not there. So I think of um, like a, a Breaker Morant or Passive Glory. I don't know if you guys, it's an old black and white Kubrick. It's, it, it's Kirk Douglas, so it doesn't cheat you on the manly action. <laughs> um, uh, and the Oxbow incident, Henry Fonda and, and Colonel Potter from MASH. Just, and all of these I digested, you know, into my path uh, into the law or, or through the law. Um, but to me, those... They're they're kind of a tonic, a shot in the arm uh, to tell you that even if a day seems boring, you were at least participating in a system where you can advocate for somebody and and absent 
uh, corruption or or craziness that I think remains rare, uh, you you get a fair shot at things. And and there are places in the world and 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 times in history where that just wasn't available, and people lived through those times. So it it can to to watch a film like that can kind of bring home to you that what you're doing can make a difference. And frustrating though it is, you know, the, the world in which we navigate at least allows for a voice. You're making me want to be a lawyer. <laughs> you could change your beard, man. You're already a partner. Soon you'll be a lawyer. <laughs> Anything, uh, thinking back, you probably haven't spoken this much about law school in a while, but thinking back to your law school days, anything you could tell current law students um, from your experience, what they might want to focus on if they want to get into either criminal defense or white-collar defense or or they ultimately want to be a litigator in some capacity? Right. I mean, I guess I would I would counsel um, everything in moderation or as much moderation as you can get away with. I mean, the, Yale was notorious and I think must remain notorious even if they've started grading people. Uh, Judge Winter used to call it uh, a – a third-rate philosophy department with a night school attached. <laughs> they obviously have the most qualified and most sought-after instructors in the world, but once they get tenure, I mean, we had we had law school courses called Tyranny of Kant, you know, Law on the Moon, Law on Sports, but there, there were Tolerance and Intolerance. All these were great courses, Tragic Choices, um, uh, uh, Dean Calabresi uh, taught. And, you know, these are, these are big thinker courses. Half my classmates... Uh, went on to be law professor somewhere. So the big thinker aspect of it is fun. And I think nobody should go through any law school anywhere without sort of stroking their chin and thinking big because I think whatever you end up doing in the law, thinking like a lawyer in its most expansive experience is part of what you need to learn to do and just sort of exhaling or, or lying in the hammock and just using your noggin I think is part of that. But it's also important, I think, um, to to get uh, practical experience. And if you can do it in a seminar setting from a practitioner, a lot of times, you know, uh, a, a private lawyer will get pressed into service to teach bankruptcy to or whatever. Um, but I, I think everybody's law school experience should include both classroom clinical work where you're out there in the world and, and doing something under supervision, but also learning from practitioners. Practitioners, so you know that the, to me, the subject matter is less important than than sitting through at least some of your courses with people who are out there in the field doing it every day. Michael, if you weren't a lawyer, what do you think you'd be today? Uh, I may have to figure that out soon. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think I might be a journalist or a creative writer because I, I mean, I guess the one the one block to that is is writer's block, which I experience in my legal work, you know, procrastination, getting up and walking around and only the, the fear of looming deadline, getting you to the goal line. Um, Having a snack. Yeah. A snack is a great way to kill time. It, it, well, you guys can see me out there in radio land. You can't see how many snacks I've got, but <laughs> uh, uh, Brooklyn Defender is the least of my problems. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess the, the, the terrifying thing about that and without giving up my siblings. Two of them are, are PhDs and PhD, unlike law school, you know, you write your check every semester and you can hang around as long as you want. 
as long as you write a, a thesis someday. And I think as long as the two of them took, I might still be at it because they're as, as, as scary as deadlines are, they are useful. Um, so, you know, that, that, that sort of work certainly would appeal. And I guess if I were, if I were Clark Kent or Lois Lane, I'd be on deadline and I'd have to get it done every day. But um, the, the, the temptation for me would be to do something bookish uh, and creative, but by, by definition, necessarily undeadlined. So I'll come back on the show if I ever figure that out. You can always start a podcast. There you go. We're looking for a new co-host. <laughs> All right, Michael. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, gentlemen, and good luck with it. Thank you thank so much. Thank you so much.